Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And we're off to a good start. The clicker's working today, so this is good news for me. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 is where we're going to be heading today. And uh, before we start, I would like to begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word and for the treasure and the hope that it brings us. As we look around the world around us and, and as we go through life and as different things happen to us, Father, we become very aware that we need you and that we need your word. And so we are so thankful for that this morning. And so, Father, I pray that this morning as we open your word, first of all, I pray that you help me to be clear and concise. I pray that you would uh, just help us as we dig into your word and as we study, that it would be helpful, um, that you would uh, speak through me and through your word here in Jesus' name. If you've spent much time around toddlers, you know that one of the cutest things that they do is ask questions. It's also one of the most annoying things that they can do, because if you take them anywhere, you get, ooh, what's that? What's this? What's that? What's this? Why? 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 And after a while, you're just like, stop asking questions. I just can't take it anymore, right? But, but why do they do it? Typically, it's because they have this new and amazing world in front of them. And they want to know everything. Like, they want to know what everything is. Especially like a grocery store with all the colors and everything. And, you know, they're like, ooh, I, I want that. Why do you want to eat a cereal with a leprechaun on it? That's weird. Like, you, you don't want that. No, I do. There's marshmallows in it. It's awesome. You know, they, they, and so everything. They just see it, and it's amazing. The lobster tent. What's that? Sounds like it's a lobster. And this is amazing. It's like the zoo inside the grocery store. And then when they're a little older, they find out what it's for. And then they want you to, like, come up with a whole plan to save them. And they're like, this isn't Little Nemo, kid. Like, sorry. So they're great. They ask a ton of questions. And as young believers, we're like this too. I was just at a conference, at a Bible conference, and uh, I wound up, it's a, it's a weird story, but I wound up with another church's group. I wound up praying with them. Uh, it's my brother's church. And in that group was a young Christian. He was a young believer. He hadn't been a believer very long. And that made the whole thing better because everything was amazing. I mean, this guy was like the, the guy on, in the Lego movie. Like, everything is awesome. Like, that's, we got a book, and it was like the best book in the world. And, like, they would preach something, and he was just like, this is amazing. And so it was so much fun being with him because he had a bazillion questions, and everything was new and exciting for him. And yet, too often, I fear that we preach, approach the Bible more like a teenager than we do a toddler. I don't know about you guys, but when I hit about 17 or 18, I became the smartest man in the world. And you couldn't tell me a thing because I had all the answers. From about 18 to 20. And then reality hit and you come crashing back down, right? And you realize you don't know anything. But I fear that too often we come at the Bible more like a teenager. Because we feel like we have to have all the answers, right? We feel like we should have it all figured out by now. I mean, I thought for sure by the time I hit my 40s, I'd have it figured out, at least more than this. Like, I didn't realize I'd still be trying to figure stuff out. Like, when I was young and I looked at people in their 40s, I thought they had it all together. Like, now I realize they had no clue what they were doing. They were just, like, winging it day by day. I was talking with a buddy of mine a couple years ago, and I said, man, this is, you're so good at what you do. I mean, he's just incredible. He's amazing at what he does. And he laughed, and he said, don't tell anybody this, but I have no clue what I'm doing. I'm just like winging it day to day. And 
isn't that how we feel? Because everything changes. Everything changes. And we never feel like we get settled, right? Like, through life. You start off as a single person. That's not too bad. You can deal with that. Maybe you have roommates in college. But singleness isn't too bad. Then you get married. And I, I can't speak from a lady's perspective, but from the guy's perspective, like now suddenly you're supposed to put the toilet seat down. Leaving your clothes on the floor is no longer kosher. And you're supposed to do dishes every day, not once a week. Like there's things that change, and you're like, whoa, what is this? You're living with somebody completely different. You're trying to figure it out, right? So then you, you kind of think, I kind of got this married thing down. Like I'm not making her upset every day. Like we're doing pretty good. And then you have a kid. And that throws a huge wrinkle into the whole thing, right? Because now you have this little infant and you're supposed to keep it alive. And you're like, ah! And it doesn't say anything. It just screams at you. And you're just like, I, I don't know. Like, it's like multiple choice, but it's screaming at you. And you, just, you don't know what to do. And, and then they start to move around and then they're mobile. And you think, oh, this is cool. They're mobile. You think your house is toddler proof. It's not. My son used to find such inventive ways to try to kill himself. And all we were trying to do is just keep him alive. Like, if we can just keep him alive to five, we'll, we'll probably be all right. And then you have another kid. And kids aren't the same. Why not? Like, they came out of the same people. Why can't they be the same? But they're so different, right? And then you wind up with a couple kids, and they're all very different, usually opposite. And that's just not fair. Because, like, once you go through all the work of, like, kind of getting one, you're like, okay, I kind of I got this. The next one comes along and throws the playbook out because it's all brand new. And that's just crazy. Life changes. It changes so much. And then the kids leave. And now you're back to married with the two of you. All sorts of things change. Jobs change. Homes change. Locations change. People come and go. Life is full of changes. Enough so that we quickly believe or we quickly realize that we have no idea what's going on. We can't quite get a grasp on things. And man, we need help, even though we don't want to admit that we need help. We don't like to admit that. The teenager comes out of us, and we think, I need to have this all figured out. Like, other people are going to think, I'm a complete louse if I don't have this life thing figured out. And I'm becoming more and more convinced that God wants us to approach life and our life with him more like a toddler, maybe a little less like a teenager. I think God loves our questions, and he wants us to question him, question his word about anything and everything. Like, come to him with just tons of questions, because we have them. We can try to pretend like we don't have them, but we do. Things happen, and we're like, why? Why would you do that? Or why wouldn't you stop this? Or why don't you stop this? Why are you letting these things happen? And yet, how many biblical apologists do we now have who started out by attacking the word, and in an effort to disprove it, found out it was actually true, life-changing, powerful word of God? So then why then sometimes we are so afraid to question things, question the Bible, question God. I think we're kind of afraid we're going to break him. Like, gee, if I ask that really hard question of God, is it going to break? <laughs> what if everything just crumbles apart? However, if the Bible is indeed the living, true word of God like he claims, then it can withstand our questions, right? So then we can ask those questions, dig into the word, and find some answers. And I found that the more I question what I see in God's word, the more he shows me. And I think part of this is because my heart's finally ready to get an answer. Like, I'm finally open enough to listen to him say something to me and stop being so bullheaded like I usually am. 
So when I get to the point that I'm willing to ask a question and I'm willing to question something, I'm also finally to the point where I'm willing to hear what God has to say. So this morning, I would like to look at what I think is a pretty familiar passage of Scripture, and I want to ask some questions. I want us to approach this passage like a toddler, not so much like a teenager, and ask the three questions, why, what, and how? This passage has been a little confusing to me. That's one of the reasons we're, we're going to jump into it today. Um, I'm pretty excited about it. But as often happens when we, st- when we study these things out, we find such encouragement and hope and instruction. And so I hope that this morning, as we look at this passage in Philippians and ask a few questions, that maybe you'll find encouragement and hope as well. And maybe you'll even walk away with a few questions of your own that you can study out. So if you would, uh, read with me. I will read Philippians 2, and we're going to start at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good So our first question this morning is why? Why work out my salvation? Why? And we see the encouragement. We see the encouragement. And first we see that it's all connected. The first question we're going to ask is why? And we'll notice that in the passage that we looked at this morning, it begins with the word, therefore. Which means that we're coming right in the middle of a connected passage that's connected to the passages around it. And I'll go ahead and tell you that the passage right before this one is connected to another one. So we're going to wind up going almost all the way back to the beginning of the chapter to kind of figure out where Paul's coming from before we dive deeply into this. So we're copying into this in the middle of a thought process. And uh, Paul is going to proceed to instruct the church after this little section that we're looking at. He's going to proceed to instruct the church about not getting caught up in grumbling and complaining. So this is not an independent thought that we're looking at right here. It's part of a bigger thought, it's part of a bigger instruction, and it's all connected. So we need to figure out what Paul is telling us here, and we'll have to do some work to try to figure out where he's coming from, since it is all connected to each other. And if we try to do this all by itself, we'll come to all sorts of really bad conclusions. And I know you've heard this a thousand times, but I'm going to say it a thousand and one. When you're reading your Bible, and you come across something, you're like, huh, read like the whole passage around it. You can't just cherry pick. We get ourselves in so much trouble when we cherry pick. And I found oftentimes when I cherry pick, it's to my own benefit. Because I need like a little word of encouragement or I need a little something of this or a little. And so I cherry pick something out. I'm like, ooh, that sounds nice. Here's the problem though. I can't hold God to promises he never made. So then I get all frustrated and upset when God doesn't come through on a promise. And then you look at it and you're like, oh, he never made that. Like I kind of picked that out. So be careful about cherry picking because everything is connected. And we're going to look at this passage understanding that it's linked to the passages and the thoughts around it. Okay? And I really love how Paul begins his instruction here with my beloved. And we see Paul's heart. So we understand as he begins, my beloved. This isn't a professional letter. This is a personal letter. It's a personal note. A personal plea. And I love that because I think it sets the tone for what Paul's about to say. He's reminding the church that he loves and cares for them before he begins to instruct them. And what a great example this is for us, too, saying that, uh, uh, you've heard that saying, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. You've heard that kind of a trite saying or idea. Um, But I think there's a lot of truth in that. 
And I think Paul is setting a good example for us here to make sure that we really care about someone before we try to fix them or before we try to speak into their lives. Because we live in a very lonely culture. Have you noticed that? Like we're all connected, but we're not. And there's a lot of really lonely people around us. And they just want someone to see them. They just want someone to love them. They just want someone to care about them. And so I think that's important for us to remember. Uh, C.J. Mahaney, it's a little small, sorry about that. Hopefully you can still read it. C.J. Mahaney said this, whether it's one's spouse, child, friend, fellow church member, coworker, if there isn't some degree of affection in your heart for someone, if you are unable to identify an evidence of grace in their life, then you would be wise to postpone any assertion and any correction until there is affection, until you are able to identify an evidence of grace. Paul doesn't assume they are aware of his affection for them. He reminds them. It's a great reminder to us to follow Paul's example and check our own hearts and motives before we try to exhort or instruct someone else. Because a lot of damage has been done in the name of Christ by people who wanted to get an agenda across or an idea across, and they forgot to love people. And so sometimes that means that we need to check ourselves before we dive into instruction. And for me personally, this is hardest in the house with my family, right? Because sometimes you're right, and they need to know you're right. Sometimes I need to check myself and make sure, why do I really need to get this across? Is it for my, my wife or my daughter's benefit, or is it just because I just want to get my point across? So we see Paul's heart. Next, we see Paul's encouragement. Paul's encouragement to them is to keep on obeying, just as you have always obeyed. Man, what a commendation, right? just as you have always obeyed. As Paul looked at the church, he saw a pattern of obedience in their lives, and he commends them for it and encourages them to keep it up. And I think it's interesting that he mentions both while he was there and while he was away. He was in prison. So he mentions both, like while I was there and while I was in prison, you kept it up. You kept on obeying. Makes me think of a little kid. Like the little kid obeys and is a nice, quiet little, little kid when mommy and daddy are in the room. But as soon as mommy and daddy leave, what happens? They make a beeline for that electrical outlet. It's like, this is going to be awesome. It's a shocking experience. Thank you. There was like two pity laughs. I appreciate that. But Paul commends them for having a heart of obedience that has shown itself true and genuine. And this pricks my conscience a little bit. Could the same be said of me? Like when people look at my life, what do they see? Do they see a life of obedience to Christ? When people look at Cornerstone as a whole, what do they see? When people look at us, do they see a life of submission and obedience to Christ? I don't know. When I look inside my own heart, what do I see? That's a harder one because we know all of our dark places. When I look inside my own heart, do I see a heart of submission and obedience to Christ? And if I'm not sure, maybe I can pray with the psalmist, search me and know my heart and see if there are any wicked ways in me. Just be really careful when you pray that prayer because God loves to answer it. So why are we going to work out our salvation? Because it's part of a life of obedience to Christ. As you have always obeyed, work out your salvation. So the next natural question is, what? Like, what does, what does that even mean? And so we see next the instruction. We see the instruction. And the first thing that we see as we look in the instruction is that it's rooted in Christ. So as I mentioned before, this is not an independent passage, but it's linked to the passages before it. So we'll have to do a little flyover of 
first part of this chapter in order to get an idea of where Paul is coming from. And there is a ton, there's so much in these passages that we're about to look at, we're just flying over them with a super, super flat jet plane right at the top. So we're not digging in. If you're interested, I highly encourage you to jump into it yourself. There's a ton of really cool things in there, um, but we're just going to skim the surface. So the therefore that you see in verse 12 links us all the way back up to verse 9, if you're looking at your Bibles, and uh, which is no problem. And I started reading verse 9, and it says, therefore again. It's like, well, shoot, we're still in the middle of something. So then we're going to go all the way back up to almost the beginning of uh, verse uh, 2-3 in here. As I read this, uh, I'm going to read this real quick. Notice that there are a few themes running throughout this passage. It's humility, selflessness, and, and even obedience. So let's start with verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every tongue should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So we see a plea here in these passages for a selfless attitude and humility, and then we're given Jesus Christ as the ultimate example of both. Notice humility is mentioned in verses 3, and then Christ's example of humility in verse 8. Notice the plea to stop thinking so much of yourself in verse 3, and then the example of how Christ did that in verse 7. And Paul says, don't be so selfish and proud. Instead, look around and look at others. Look at how Christ did it, and then mimic him. Be like Christ. Here's an example. Here's Jesus Christ. Be like him. Act like him. Follow his lead. Follow his example. Right? Think a kid with an athlete. Have you ever watched a kid with his favorite athlete or he, he watches this athlete and then he wants to mimic everything that he does, right? He wants to kick like him, throw like him. He wants to wear the same clothes this athlete wears. He wants to wear the same shoes the athlete wears. It's incredible. It doesn't really work, though. You put a pair of Jordans on me, I'm still not going to be able to play basketball. It's just one of those things. I'm also old enough, this is an aside, I'm also old enough now that, do you remember when you were young and like new sneakers made you run faster? That doesn't work for me anymore. It's really disappointing. You get a new pair of sneakers and you think, I'm going to be able to go faster. And you can't. Your, uh, your age outdoes the newness of the sneakers, which is really too bad. Anyway, we're called to follow Christ's example. And you'll notice that when Paul commends the church for their obedience, their minds would probably head back to what he had just said about Christ's obedience and recall that. So this is the backdrop of this instruction. And probably what was ringing in the ears of the listeners or the readers as they heard or read this letter for the first time. And so that's what I kind of want us thinking about and ringing through our heads as we get into the next part. That Christ humbled himself, that he became a servant. He died on the cross for my sins, but he didn't stay there. He rose from the dead and is exalted at the right hand of the Father. This is supporting the instruction, work out your own salvation. 
So then, uh, notice that Paul doesn't say work for your salvation. He says work out your salvation, which means that we have a part to play. We have a part to play. And we know that this can't mean that the Bible, or we, we know what this can't mean. It, it can't mean work for your salvation because the Bible is very clear about the role of works in salvation. Right? Let me throw two at you. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Romans 3, 21 very clearly says the deeds of the law don't justify anyone, but righteousness comes by grace. Don't work for your salvation. There's no salvation by works. So he's not saying work for your salvation. He's saying work out your salvation. Work out your salvation. What does this mean? I'm going to pull in some people to help me. John MacArthur says this. This verb is very important to note. It's a present tense imperative verb, which means it is a command that has a continual emphasis. Keep on continually making the effort to work out your salvation. Now, what does it specifically mean? Let me see if I can help you. The verb, as far as I understand it, always means to bring something to fulfillment, to fullness or completion, to bring something to fulfillment or fullness or completion. And what he is saying is this. The salvation that is in you needs to be brought out all the way to its fullness, to its fulfillment. It really is a command for sustained effort and diligence in working out what has already been planted that was long. You probably still say, what? So let me pull in two other guys. Eugene Peterson called, uh, he translated this as a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. Peter O'Brien translated this as continuous, sustained effort. Continuous, sustained effort. So we are called to have an active part in our sanctification process. As we seek to become more like Christ and live like him, we're not passive in this role, but we're active. We have a part to play, and we're expected to have an active role in our spiritual growth and the pursuit of our godliness. John Owen says this, God works in us and with us, not against us or without us. Charles Spurgeon said, the assistance of divine grace is not given to us to put aside our own efforts, but to excite them. So Paul is calling out the church and saying, don't just sit there and expect God to do something amazing. Do something. Get involved. You are secure in your salvation in Christ. So that should give us the motivation and the security to push in, to push into Christ and to see everything that's there. So then the next logical question is, that sounds great, but where do I start? I almost hate to say this because it's so trite. Read your Bible and pray. Like, don't you, you hear that all the time, and you're like, check out. Because we hear it, but yet, we know, right? We know that this is the core of how we live out the Christian life. Because that's how God speaks to us. And we need to be actively seeking and searching for God as we read and pray. I know that it almost sounds too simple, but it's the core of our Christian life. Reading the Bible and praying. And honestly, this is where God did quite a work in me, personally, because I realized that I was actually pretty lazy in my Bible reading and really lazy in my prayer. You know, you read a couple verses and you check it off your list, you say a quick prayer, and you're done. Almost my day. And it's so easy to do that, though, because we get busy. Things happen. Kids have schedules and things are going on, and we just, that's an easy thing for us to push to the side. 
but yet it's so critical for the health of our Christian lives and for us as believers to come to a relationship with Christ. And yet we only throw a couple minutes at him every day. I know it's hard sometimes to really read your Bible and study it, to really pray and memorize scripture. It's so easy for us to just get lazy and read a few words and, and consider us done. So how can I expect to grow in my faith in Christ when I'm not willing to dive into his word, when I'm not willing to spend a lot of time in prayer? My wife and I met on a blind date. You might not know this, but we met on a blind date. Actually, my uncle and my grandfather met on blind dates, too. So when I left for college, they said, no matter what you do, don't go on a blind date. So we met on a blind date. We met. She wasn't interested in a boyfriend. I wasn't interested in a girlfriend. So we met. We were friends for a little while, and then eventually we started dating. When you start dating, how does that work? You go out on a date, and you say, we have five minutes. Go. Like, five minutes is up. See ya. No, what do you do? You invest in that person, right? You want to spend time with them. You want to get to know as much as possible about that person, right? To find out, are we a good match? Are they a psychopath? Where are we going to, how is this going to fit? What is this going to be like? I'm a psychopath, and she still married me. Um, (laughs) No, but we really try to get to know that person, right? But yet, we're supposed to have a relationship with God. And how hard is it sometimes for us to spend time getting to know him? And we get to know him through his word and through prayer. And so as we think of our relationship with God as a a relationship, and that is we've got to put in some time. And we have to invest. And we have to get to know him. And he's right here. He's there. And as you pray and ask God, show me. Show me yourself today. He will. It's incredible. He will. And so we need to invest a little bit of time into getting to know God. Continuous, sustained effort. Continuous, sustained effort. Long obedience in the same direction. So this is not glamorous. This is the daily struggle. I don't want you to think that this is something that we achieve or attain or something that we can even measure, right? This is the ups and downs, the good and bad, victory, defeat, but yet through it all, we're becoming more and more and more like Christ. Little by little, inch by inch, step by step, sometimes millimeter by millimeter, is hard for us today because we live in a fast-paced world. We want everything now. And it's frustrating when you keep struggling with the same thing over and over again. And you're like, no, I need victory. I need to like proceed. I need to see uh, numbers. Like I, I need to see progress. And we don't. And it's hard for us. Continuous, sustained effort. Think marathon, not sprint. Think long, hard, grueling, not flinch and it'll be over. But it's worth it. Because just as Jesus is highly exalted, so we have a future with the Lord in heaven to look forward to. The prize, as Paul calls it. John MacArthur goes on to say, what he is really saying is not only work out your salvation, but work on your salvation in the sense that you are working on toward that moment when you will see Christ and receive the end of your faith, even the fullness of salvation. There's one more little aspect that I would like to add onto the on the back end here, is that we don't have to do this alone. In some of the studying that I did, uh, many of the people felt like there was a corporate feel to the way Paul was talking to, because as I mentioned after this, he's going to get into grumbling and complaining in the church, and so they felt like there was a corporate feel to this too. Like, yes, work out your own salvation in your own heart and life, but corporately, as a body of Christ, 
work it out together. So there's an aspect of discipleship, of coming alongside each other, of helping each other as we grow. The enemy loves to isolate us, loves to get us alone, loves to get us in our thoughts all by ourselves, because then he can absolutely destroy us and wreck us. Right? He can, I mean, we talk to ourselves in such a horrible way sometimes, and he can use that. But we get together in a group, and we encourage each other and build each other up and push each other to become more like Christ. And there's value there. That helps. It really helps a lot. So my question is, do you have people who care about you, who love you, who push you, push you to pray, push you to read your Bible? If you don't, pray that the Lord would bring some folks your way. Pray that he would uh, bring some folks your way who could help you with that. So now we know that this instruction to work out our salvation is rooted in Christ and that our part is to obey and that that's an active participation. But notice that Paul doesn't stop there. He addresses our attitude as well. Notice the last part of that phrase, with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The word fear in the Greek is phobos. We get phobia from it. The word trembling is tromos. We get trauma from it. Phobia and trauma. Which is going to be fun? Phobia and trauma. Paul is saying that we should have a healthy fear in our hearts for offending God. John Piper that this should, says that this should not be taken as a threat, but as a gift. It shouldn't be taken as a threat, but as a gift. He says, tremble at this breathtaking thought. God Almighty is in you. God the one in you willing. God is the one in you working. My continuous, sustained, strenuous effort is not only being carried out in the very presence of all holy God, but is the very continuous, sustained, strenuous effort of God himself. I am not waiting for a miracle. I am acting a miracle. My action is God's acting in fighting my sin. My willing is God's willing. John MacArthur said, This is not a fear of being doomed to eternal torment, nor a hopeless dread of judgment that leads to despair. It is rather a reverential fear, a holy concern to give God the honor he deserves and avoid the chastening of his displeasure. Such fear protects against temptation and sin and gives motivation for obedient, righteous Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is heavy. This is heavy. How in the world am I supposed to do this? If we keep reading, Paul answers that question too. How am I supposed to do this? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. How? There is this motivating power inside of us that is so exciting and so encouraging. And we find out that God is in us. God is in us. This is so encouraging. And I hope that you kind of felt the weight of the previous instruction. Like, there's a lot here. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And there's, there's a weight kind of, ah, how am I supposed to do this? I can't do this. I don't know how I'm supposed to do this. Like, it's impossible. It feels impossible. And then, as Paul gives us that, that encouragement, for it is God who works in you with that salvation. So there's help. It's not me. It's God. It's God in me. And this is so encouraging. Paul explains that it's not up to you, but it's God working in you that makes that possible. And isn't this great news? You don't have to do this by yourself. God's working in you. This is an incredible encouragement. At least it is for me. I get excited. This is an incredible encouragement. MacArthur again says, Oh, what a great statement. God in you. He's not working on you. He's not working for you. He's working in you. What a profound reality. 
And this is what keeps us from getting discouraged, from giving up and burning out. We don't have to come up with the energy or the will or the determination to work out our salvation all by ourselves. God in us will do that. Let me just let this soak in for a minute. God is working in you. In you. Working and moving. That's incredible. I mean, this should get us excited. God is working in you and me. It might not look like it sometimes. Honestly, it might not feel like it sometimes. But he is. The truth of the matter, he is. He's working in us no matter what the circumstances. I don't know about you, but when I think about this piece for a little while, it does get me excited because then that means that now I have purpose and meaning in my otherwise dull and boring life. God's working in me. God is in me and he's working in me and therefore he's using me to work in other people's lives too. Like what? Not, this is exciting. God working in me then kind of flows out if I allow him and now I can help other people too? Like now we're getting somewhere. This is awesome. God's working in us. John Piper says that this peace of God is in us He says this, that this does not make Christians passive. It makes them hopeful, energetic, and courageous. The truth that God is working in us should motivate us to persevere and keep pushing back against the darkness that we see all through our community and in our own lives and in those around us. And I personally think it's when we forget that God is working in us that we kind of become lazy, that we kind of lose our drive, that we get discouraged and we get full of despair and then we decide to quit. So encourage yourself with this truth. Encourage each other with this truth. God is in you. God is working in you. As believers, God is in us. He's working and moving, and things are happening, and he's in control of all of it. All of it. God's in control of all of it. Look at Job. You look back at Job. You look at the throne room. Right? God had to give Satan permission even to touch Job. That's incredible. It's also kind of a struggle sometimes when you understand that some of the pain you're feeling that God allowed that to come through. But we have to trust he is good. He knows exactly what he's doing. He has a plan. He does not waste time, pain, circumstances. He has a plan. It's for your good. You might not see it until eternity, but it's for our good. And sometimes we just have to rest and trust in that truth because it feels like junk and it feels like he's being mean. But we know that he's good and we know that whatever is happening, that it's for our good. So encourage yourself with this truth. God is in us. And that's kind of exciting. God is working in us, and God is working for his good pleasure. As Paul wraps up this sentence, he draws our attention away from ourselves and back to God. Another greater reminder that this is not about us. This life is not about us. It's not about what I can get. It's not about what I can gain. It's not about how successful I can become. It's not about me. God has a much higher calling, that we live in such a way that serves others and glorifies himself, not me. Paul Tripp often says that we're stage hawks, that there's a place in our hearts that God has center stage and we constantly try to jump into that spotlight. The last section also caused me to remember the last part of the passage before where it says, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And that's really comforting when you think about it that God is working in our lives, and that goes way beyond our realm of understanding. He's working on a whole different level that we don't and can't understand. And honestly, we're not called to understand it, which is kind of hard, but we're not called to understand it. We're called to trust him, which is really, really hard most times because we like to understand things. I like to understand things. I like to know what's going on. I like to have a plan. And I don't think God's a plan kind of guy because 
so far, I'm like, here's my plan. And he's like, throw it away. We're going to do this thing. So we have to trust that God is in us and he's working us. We just have to trust that God is doing a good work and that there is a purpose and a reason behind what's going on. And then we can rest and hope in that truth. To wrap things up, I'd like to read a quote from D.A. Carson. It's a little long, but I feel ties this up really well. It's from his book, Basics for Believers, an exposition of Philippians. I have it on the screen. Um, that I just think wraps this whole idea up, and I hope it's helpful to you as well. It's from D.A. Carson. It is vitally important to grasp the connection between God's sovereignty and our responsibility in verses 12 and 13. The text does not say, work to acquire your salvation, for God has done his bit, and now it's all up to you. Nor does it say, you may already have your salvation, but now perseverance on it depends entirely on you. Still less does it say, let go and let God. Just relax. The Spirit will carry you. Rather, Paul tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, precisely because God is working in us, both to will and to act according to his good purpose. Nor is God merely to strengthen us in our willing and acting. Paul's language is stronger than that. God himself is working in us, both to will and to act. He works in us at the level of our wills and at the level of our doing. But far from this being a disincentive to press on, Paul insists that it's an incentive. Assured as we are that God works in this way in his people, we should be all the more strongly resolved to will and to act in ways that please our master. Long obedience in the same direction. Continuous, sustained effort. Not really exciting. <laughs> Not thrilling. But boy, is it encouraging. This is a journey. We're on a journey. It's a marathon. It's a sprint. But we're not in this alone. God is in us. And the scripture very clearly says that that power does not have to come from us. It comes from God. And he is in us, working and making a way. And I hope that this morning that that encourages you. Don't quit. Don't give up. Like, I don't know what you're going through. And I, and I don't know what pain you're feeling. But I know we all go through stuff. And we all feel pain. And we all, at one point in time, want to be like, I'm done. I just can't do this anymore. And Paul is saying, don't quit. Don't give up. Because this is a really long race. This is a really long marathon. And if you've run, you know that there comes a point where you're like, what am I doing? I just need to quit. But if you just hang in there, man, it feels so good when you hit that finish line, doesn't it? It feels so good when you finish. And we have such an amazing finish. Because someday, we're going to see our Savior face to face. And that's going to be absolutely incredible. God is working in you, and God is for you. Father, we are so thankful for your word this morning. Father, we're so thankful for the truths in this, that we do have a part to play, but yet you don't call us to do that all by ourselves. You're in us. You're with us. You're working in us, and that's so exciting. When we stop and we think about God Almighty of all creation is in me, we want to thank you, Lord. Father, I pray that you would be with us as we um, ponder this even more. Maybe we have questions. That you would help us to, 
and maybe sincerely dig into your word to get to know you better, get to know who you are, is explaining it to us right here in your letter to us. And so I pray that you would help us as we seek to dig that out a little bit, that you would be with us and help us. And if there is someone here, who I pray that you would help them in a special way, that you would help them to see that you are with them, that you never left them there. This is a long journey, and sometimes life feels really long. And I pray that you would help us to encourage us uh, through your word, 